63 past the hour, I'm Marsha Jeffries with the top movie headlines. Warner Brothers is hoping to resurrect the DC movie franchise with a new Man of Steel film. In the soft reboot, Superman will take on his nemesis, Pissarro Superman, an invincible villain modelled on Danish-French neo-impressionist painter Camille Pissarro. The deal was struck in what was believed to have been an extremely noisy restaurant. Adam Zielinski, the titular kid from the 1992 family comedy Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, has spoken for the first time on how a rare form of super gigantism that caused abnormal growth was exploited by filmmakers to cut down on the film's digital effects budget. Adam, who is now 800 kilometres tall, currently spends most of his time in the Earth's exosphere and says he has no plans to return to acting. And finally, climate scientists have recommended that the post-apocalyptic genre be permanently discontinued with all other films, including romantic comedies, action blockbusters and historical dramas, now grouped together into a single pre-apocalyptic genre. Speaking at the United Nations, the scientists said, Listen, the planet's cooked, so this seems like the best use of our time. To traffic now, and inbound queues are backed up at ticket boxes across most major cinema chains with a major pile-up causing delays in gold-class queues. For more, we cross to Werner Herzog in the chopper. From above, the world looks calm, ordered, harmonised. But down on the surface, there is chaos, destruction, despair. No way forward or back, like a vacuum of time. It is hopeless. Uh, thanks, Verna. Today's weather present and observable. Currently, it's degrees Celsius. Now it's Bazura time. Welcome to the Bazura Project's Radio Free Cinema, the movie show that does for radio what television does for a fax machine. Shannon Marinko and Lee Zachariah with you for the next hour. Shannon, good morning. Good to see you. Hello. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Good morning, Lee. Good morning, everyone. What's uh, what's coming up on the show today? Oh, good show today. Great show today. We're going to be talking everything Western. Yes. We're going to give you the absolute, complete history of the Western genre. Mm. Really? That seems like a lot. Well... Yeah, you know, maybe not everything, but you know, almost everything about the Western. S- still in like five minutes, that really doesn't seem like enough time for almost everything. Well, it's a lot of things. Really? It, a lot. Five things. Oh. Oh, we cut that one. It's four things. Then we talk to a children's education expert and ask the question, when is it too young to introduce your toddler to Lars von Trier? Like his films or Lars himself? Yeah, that should be a great segment. Then later, we'll be looking at why Catherine Heigl... No, sorry, that should be just why Catherine Heigl. Plus all our regular segments, it's a wonderful strife, mission inexhaustible, the past and the spurious, lots of stuff, lots of good stuff. How's your week been? Uh, My week, my week has been pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. What'd you get up to? Well, uh, I went out to see the new Marvel film with the boys. You know the boys, don't you? Uh, <laughs> the boys. Oh, oh, yeah, look out. Yeah, so we're at the cinema, and the new Ant-Man is playing in one theatre, right? And right next door, in the other theatre, is the new Catherine Breyer film. The one with all the castration. So much castration, like classic Kathy. And you know how the boys feel about castration. It has come up a surprising amount. Anyway, the two cinema doors are right next to each other and they look identical. And the Art Deco font they used on the doors makes the five and the six look basically the same. Oh, 
Uh-oh. Uh-oh, I think I know where this is going. <laughs> and because Jimmy was parking and I was off with other Jimmy getting the drinks, it was up to Darren to look after the no, tickets. No, not Darren, not Tessa. <laughs> oh, no. Right, right, right. So uh, let's just say it was a pretty interesting night. <laughs> what happened? Uh, we watched Ant-Man. Uh, yeah, it was good. Uh, Paul Rudd does not age. Right. Wow. Sounds like a wild night. Yeah. Also, other Jimmy got uh, Darren Coke instead of Diet Coke. They they should just not be let out in public. Uh, the boys. What about you? What did you do? Well, I finally caught up with a film I'd been trying to watch for ages. You know, it was one of those massive holes in my cinematic uh, life, my education. You know how everyone's got, uh, you know, a handful of those films, you know, classic films or just insanely massive popular films that you just never saw for whatever reason, you, your paths never crossed. Uh, you know, not from a lack of wanting to see it. You know, just always wanted to see it but could just never get around to it. So, so frustrating and I finally saw that this week. So that was oh, very, very satisfying. That's great. That is so great. Um, but come on, don't leave me hanging. I, I think you're leaving out an important detail. What? What'd you think of it? Oh, oh it was okay. <laughs> great. Yeah, could live without it. But now, I believe we've got a bit of an exclusive, an exclusive first look at an upcoming film. Uh, or should I say, first listen. Mm, let's have a look. What's the situation, Sergeant? See, it's like this, Captain. We got no witnesses, no murder weapon, and no evidence that anyone entered or exited the crime scene in weeks. I, I don't think there's anyone on the force who could solve this one. From the producers of From Hell and Good Guys, Bad Guys. I'm bringing in Goldberg. But, Captain, he won't come. It's the Sabbath. And there's a Jackie Mason special on at seven. He has to, Sergeant. He's the only hope we've got. When death doesn't quite seem kosher, there's only one mensch who sees what others do not. Murder happened around 10 a.m. on a Saturday. Everyone with a motive would have been at service. Actually, Sergeant, I think you'll find that the strand of shatel hair on the gefilte fish behind the menorah over by the mezuzah proves that the so-called Mrs. Kotkin did not actually attend temple and has in fact been stooping a verklempt Rabbi Silverstein. But that means... Yes, the killer is a shiksa. Coming to cinemas this Yom Kippur, John Safran is the observant Jew. Looks like this trek just got Talmudic. Really looking forward to that one. Uh, you know the director got his start as a moil. Uh, this is his first film, and apparently he got final cut. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Well, we are very excited to be joined in the studio by one of the biggest stars in the world. You may know her as Bradley Cooper's fretting earthbound wife in the sci-fi epic Mission to Mercury, or as Ryan Gosling's girlfriend in the high-stakes financial drama Bull versus Bear, or as the nurse who tends to Benedict Cumberbatch's Sir Isaac Newton in the period biopic The Mind of a Brain. To comic book fans, she's Mega Girl, the sexy aluminium killbot with the strength of seven ladies. But to Aussies, she'll always be good old Mealsy from the Adelaide Hills. It's Amelia Beljarman. Amelia, welcome. Thank you. It's so nice to be back home. Ooh, detecting a slight American accent there. You've been gone too long. Well, that's what people tell me. I just can't hear it, though. I mean, I still feel like I'm the same Aussie chick who wears flip-flops, loves pumpkin spice lattes, and kicks back with a few Budweiser's on President's Day. Oh, now, it feels like ages since we've seen you in Australia. Your rise over the past few years has just been meteoric. You went from the girl next door to this massive superstar. Talk us through how it happened. Well, as you all know, I start on Home and Away for four 
four years, and it really, really made me want to become an actor. So my agent suggested I move to L.A. Why L.A.? It's kind of the center of film production. Really? So I hopped on a plane to California with no plans, no job, no luggage, nothing. And I got to admit, I did do it rough for a while. Is it true you slept on Margot Robbie's couch? I did. Although I obviously had to stop when she came home and called the police. And that's how you broke in? To her house. Yeah, the industry took a bit longer. My agent said that I should get some more training, and I really lucked out because I got to work with the amazing Leon Klagenfurt. Oh, he's incredible. A real trailblazer in improv comedy. Mm, Absolutely. He rejected the yes and style of improv and pioneered the no but technique. It stopped sketches dead in their tracks, but audiences were always really grateful. Is that the same Leon Klagenfurt who was famously sued by Mickey Rourke? Oh yeah, that was after Leon franchised No Butt into a chain of plastic surgery clinics that promised absolutely vertical backsides. Unfortunately, all of his clinicians were improvisers who'd been given plastic surgeon too often by Beverly Hills audiences shouting out professions. Poor Mickey looked so bad. And then even worse after the surgery. And taking these classes with Klagenfurt was what scored you the big break? Without a doubt. I met so many incredible actors at No But, a lot of rising talent like me, but also a number of big stars who would keep going back for refresher classes. Super successful actors who were trying to maintain total stoicism, really make sure they gave nothing back to the audience. Tommy Lee Jones, Clint Eastwood, guys like that would come back to remove creeping vestiges of emotion from their faces without having to resort to Botox. It was really humbling. Now, I know you've told this story on all the talk shows, but can you tell us about the moment that changed it all? Well, one day I was getting ready to do a sketch and Harrison Ford showed up. Harrison owed Leon everything and Leon had him get on stage and be my scene partner. (laughs) It was incredible. We were giving each other absolutely nothing to work with. It was just excruciating for everyone present. Harrison felt that our lack of chemistry would be perfect for his next film. That was Homeschool, where you played his runaway teenage daughter. Mm, And that was such a big break for me. Second billing on a massive box office hit. The opportunity to work with Brian Singer, back when we were all pretending we didn't know about his predatory behaviour. And some really iconic dramatic scenes, lines I still quote to this day. You can kidnap me all you want, but when my dad finds you, he's going to shoot you to death with his gun. Just really meaty stuff. What was it like working with Ford? Oh, Harrison was really supportive. He was like a father to me. And it went so well, you ended up starring with him again in his next film, Jack of Hearts. Yeah, the studio was really keen to put us in another vehicle and they had this cute project ready to go. Harrison was playing Jack Hart, a grumpy magazine editor who bets everything he owns that he won't fall in love with his new secretary within 36 hours for some reason. The producers thought I'd be perfect as his secretary, Janet. No last name provided. Was it weird playing his love interest after playing his daughter? Oh, no, 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 not at all. That's just Hollywood, you know? Everyone's very liberated about this stuff. Age is just a number, you know? And it was just fun to work with Harrison again. He was like a husband to me. So all that was a few years ago now, and since then you've been working pretty steadily, racking up a decent resume of big studio films. It's been a dream. I've starred in comic book movies, Oscar-baity dramas. It's been incredible being able to do both kinds of films. But things have waned a little. You know, your last film came out 18 months ago. You don't have any more in the can. And a big profile on Vanity Fair suggested your best days might be behind you. 
A lot of young Aussie women are currently being touted as the next Amelia Bell Jarman. Does that bother you? No, not at all. I had a really great run during the eight years that a woman can viably lead a film. It's a bit like bull riding. Even though a lot of your co-stars have decades of longevity? No, that's the thing. Women have it way better than men. How do you figure? Well, look at it like a mathematical formula. On a one-to-one basis, the higher turnover of actresses means that though there may not be more roles for women, there are roles for more women. Chris Pratt may star in every film for some reason, but he keeps playing against different chicks. Jennifer Lawrence, Zoe Saldana, Bryce Dallas Howard, and me in that film where I kept worrying about him coming home safely from the war. What was that one called again? Kandahar. Gesundheit. That's four women who got to be movie stars. But how many men missed out on lead roles in those films because some Pratt took them all? Those guys are all unemployed. Or they had to go and be leading men in different films. Well, it's hard to argue with that. And besides, not being a leading star means that I get to take more interesting supporting roles. Plus, I get to spend more time back here in Australia, where they're just so incredibly grateful for any reflected glamour. That's right. You're back home for a new thriller called Tax Purposes. What can you tell us about that? It's basically about an Aussie actress who makes it big in Hollywood, but has to return home to rediscover her roots and also spend the requisite time in Australia to be counted as a citizen for tax reasons. Hmm. When will that be released? Oh, that's just on my Instagram stories. Anything lined up after that? Well, it's pretty exciting. It's looking like I'll be heading back to the States to play the president in Hail to the Mom, a comedy about a misbehaving Secret Service agent who's assigned to protect me, the president, and the twist is that I'm his mother. Ooh, sounds fun. Who's playing the agent? Harrison. He's been like a son to me. Coming up on the show, we look back at how Silkwood, Moonstruck and Mask kicked off the shared cinematic universe. We look at whether Paul Blart is the name of the scientist or the monster. And does your favourite film pass the Godwin Bechdel test? Only if it features two women comparing one another to Hitler. You're listening to Radio Free Cinema. Well, it's a world of remakes out there at the moment. That's been for a while now. And not just for old movies remade as new movies. Now, what's really popular is old movies being remade as musicals, stage musicals, particularly here in Australia. There's Strictly Ballroom, uh, Priscilla, Muriel's Wedding. Must be something about key Australian films of the 1990s because there's another one about to tread the boards. Yes, and we're super excited about this one because as soon as it was announced, it was like, of course. It, like, it's such an obvious choice for a musical adaptation. I'm frankly amazed it took them so long to get to it. We are, of course, talking about the next big theatrical smash hit, Bad Boy Bubby the Musical. I suspect tickets for this one are going to be very difficult to come by. In fact, only one of us was able to score an invitation for opening night, and luckily for me, that person was you. So tell me, how was it? Oh, it was everything you want and more. The songs are all earworms. The dancing is all eyeworms. The cat puppetry is incredible. All done, I believe, by the people behind The Lion King. Hmm. Oh, they do some fun stuff with the character of Jesus, who raps all of his lines. Something for fans of Hamilton there? But I should warn that the first few rows do get covered in cling wrap. So, lots of deep breaths for everyone in the stalls after Curtain Up. Now, obviously, we're both big fans of the Rolf to Hear film, so I've been a little concerned that the musical version will sanitise everything that made the original so great. The abuse, the incest, the animal killing, the prison rape, and really the primal sense of existential nihilism. Oh, no. If anything, the songs ramp all that up. Wow. I mean, you know, let's not over-reg it. The film's not that bleak. You know, there's a lot of hope in it. Mm. You mean Nicholas Hope, the actor who originated the role of Bubby? 
Oh, yes. So, listen first, as we present an exclusive first listen of the opening track. Be still while I shame. Be still while I bathe. You stay in those chains. Or I'll beat your brains Don't go outside, the air's putrefied Just pretend you're my hubby Don't be bad, you're my boy And his name is Bubby Eat your milk and sweet bread And get into bed Don't play with those bugs Give mommy some hugs Get away from that cat Put down that glad wrap don't be so grubby Be a good little boy And his name is Bobby You gotta see the funny side of things Funny fun is upon your apron strings You're a sexy woman, Flo But now I see She's out in the hall My pop's moving in He's touching her skin They're taking a nap I'll get more glad rap I'm out of this cubby No more good little boy And my name is And you can catch performances of Bad Boy Bubby the Musical at the Port Headland Arms Upstairs Beer Garden from the 23rd right through to later that evening. Book now or avoid disappointment. It's the film industry interview show that goes places others fear. How do you respond to the charge that one token gay kiss in the distant background of a single shot is more offensive to the LGBT community than nothing at all? Journalist and film critic Mark Fennell, as you've never heard him before. You claim to support the Me Too movement, but at least two of your cast have faced very public accusations. If a stunt performer is injured on your set, how does the buck not stop with you? You struck a deal with President Daniel Ortega to shoot in Nicaragua for a film about human rights abuses. Mark asks the questions nobody else dares. I mean, is it time to talk about whiteface? No one is safe. A Judy Dench. Everyone hates you. No topic is off limits. When is Pixar going to teach audiences about the pros and cons of necrophilia? Coming this summer, Mark Fennell presents the questions he would probably ask people in the film industry if they'd responded to his interview requests. Bob Iger, isn't Disney's monopolistic filmmaking destroying non-corporate cinema? And then I guess he would probably say, hey, that's a really good point, Mark, and you win, and it would be tense, and he would be sweating, right? He did, he, that, that's what it'd be, right? You're listening to the Bazura Project's Radio Free Cinema. Well, it's that time again. You are primarily responsible for this colossally stupid prank. Complexities of human pranks escape me. Don't come here. I'm hanging up the phone. Prank caller. Prank caller. This is the last prank you boys will ever play. Shannon, are you ready to get your prank on? Hang on. Let me check. (laughs) Yep. 
Good to go. So who are we calling today? We'll be placing a call to the head of 20th Century Fox, where we will pitch an exciting idea for a film. But as usual, it's not going to be Lee and Shannon calling. Today, it's going to be a couple of actors you might know as Hugh and Russell. Oh no, look out. What's going to happen? I don't know. It's ringing. Hello. G'day, this is Hugh Jackman. Hugh, how are you buddy? Mate, I am absolutely awesome. I'm awesome because the world is a great place. I'm awesome because I'm talking to you. I'm awesome because I've got my buddy Russell Crowe here with me. Say g'day, Rusty. G'day, Rusty. Listen, I'm not getting any caller ID showing up. Can you confirm it's really you? Oh, hang on. I'll tap dance for you. I can do a song too. When my baby, when my baby smiles at me, I go to Rio. Oh, sounding good. You, baby. I can sing too if you want. No, no, no. That's okay. Uh, What can I do you for, boys? We've got an idea for you. It's a project we are super excited about, and you're the first to hear it. I love it already. What's the concept? Okay, are you ready? Get this. Alvin and the Chipmunks. Huh? I know what you're thinking, and yes, we are willing to change all the things people love about the original. (coughs) I mean, sure, people... People love the original, but um, <clears throat> what is it about this particular IP that's got you guys so excited? Violence! What? What Russ means is that we want to bring the chipmunks back to their roots, do a proper gritty version of it. And this is animated? Nah, mate, all live action. And no CGI either. We want to do it all in makeup. So you guys would be playing. The chipmunks? That's right. I'm going to be Alvin, and Rusty's going to be Theodore. Right. And we've even got Eric Banner playing Simon. In fact, he's here right now. Say good day, Eric. No, you do it. <clears throat> Can the saints. Oh, hi, Eric. Don't worry about Banner singing. I can give him some lessons. Look, I'm going to be honest with you. I can't quite picture this. What's your approach? Oh, mate, it's an idea that writes itself. We open in Anguish Creek, the murder capital of Australia. Alvin, Simon and Theodore are all kids in foster care and are being abused by their carer, Dave. Hugo. That's right, Rust. We're going to get Hugo weaving as Dave. So these kids all retreat into a fantasy world where they're singing chipmunks. It's a way of dealing with the trauma. Right. So that's the opening. We then jump forward to the chipmunks as adults. Alvin's a contract killer working for the Latvian Mafia. Simon is a drug dealer making a new strain of super addictive meth for the Belarusian Mafia. Theodore sings in a band. That's right, for the Estonian Mafia. So we're all coming home because Dave is dying and we want to make sure his last moments on Earth are as painful as possible. I sing. You sure do, buddy. Well, look, uh, I'm not entirely sure. If this thing will work without the chipettes, I hear you. Can't be too testosterone heavy, especially in this day and age. We need some strong female role models, and that's where the chipettes come in. They're all drug-addicted hookers who get brutally murdered. That's right. We're thinking Elizabeth Debicki, Mia Wasikowska, and Samara Weaving. Oh, it's going to be classy as fuck. Essentially, we're basing the whole thing on Dostoyevsky's brothers Karamazov. Not slavishly, though. We're we're obviously going to make some changes. Changes to everything except the length. The film is going to be several hours long. Oh. Um. Who do you see directing this? We have a short list of directors, all of whom have been credibly accused of sexual assault. No substitutions. All right, that's the movie. What do you think? We are ready to make this thing tomorrow. Well, wow. That's a a hell of an elevator pitch. So, 
I don't know if you guys know this, but we recently made a bunch of live-action Elven films. Four of them, to be exact. In fact, the last one came out just a couple of years ago. So, basically... Yeah. Yeah, it's right for the remake. I think we have something here. What? I am so in. I'm ready to greenlight this right away. But listen, I gotta get off the line. I got a conference call with James Cameron, JC to talk the next eight avatars. Yeah, that's right. Pretty exciting, huh? One of them's all figure skating, no dialogue. Oh, it'll blow your mind apart. But look, I'm going to have our people drop contracts, get them to your agents before end of business. Eh? Love it. <laughs> Love it. Talk soon. You don't think they'll actually greenlight it? Well, you mean like last time? What was last time? I feel like we did this a few years ago. Oh, yeah. What did we pitch? Um, gritty version of Les Mis, but still a musical. <laughs> you imagine if they made that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, what do you want to do now? Saints are playing at four. Good call, Eric. The Bazura Project's Radio Free Cinema. We're out on the street asking you to solve the big Hollywood problems. There's a rumour that the X-Men universe is about to be rebooted. Who would you like to see as the new Wolverine? There's, there's so many options to choose from. Uh, I prefer the original. I've always liked Greg Kinnear. Just so long as there's plenty of full frontal nudity. I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? Radio Free Cinema. was R. Kelly and his unused theme song for the 2004 DreamWorks animation Shark Tale. Yeah, interesting creative choices made by Kelly there. Yes, yes. See, the cost I heard, the inside word, mm. was that the producers were hoping for a song that, you know, at least referenced fish or the ocean in some way, instead of a 20-minute spoken word criticism of US consent and sex trafficking laws. I hate it when the suits mess with the creative process. Mm. Uh, but now it's time for something a bit different. I understand you got the chance to meet a legend from the golden age of Hollywood. Yes, this was very exciting. There aren't a lot of guys from the golden age still with us, so it was a real treat to be able to sit down with the amazing Jerry Schutz. Now, he's not someone that most people are familiar with. No, that's true. You know, I think even the most uh, hardcore fans of classic Hollywood uh, would not necessarily know the names of the janitorial staff of the era. And, you know, fair enough, speaking to a janitor might not sound like the most fascinating interview in the world, but Jerry really had an amazing life. You know, he met everyone. He worked for everyone. He was witness to some of the most iconic moments in cinema history. He's just got so many stories. Uh, Jerry recently came out to Australia for the first time and I was lucky enough to get some time with him at his hotel. The first job I ever had was in 1927. I just arrived in Hollywood, California, and I was immediately hired by Mr. Al Jolson to wipe down his face after each day of filming on The Jazz Singer. I did such a good job of converting him back into a Caucasian that he recommended me to all of his friends, and I soon found myself sanitizing the domiciles of the rich and the famous. I cleaned the sex tunnel that connected Cary Grant's house to Randolph Scott's house, the sex aqueduct that connected Esther Williams' swimming pool to Johnny Weissmuller's sensory enhancement tank, and the sex-dimensional portal that connected Fatty Arbuckle's jail cell to Betty Boop's jazz dungeon. The sex tunnels of now are not like the ones from back in the day. They, they were classy, you know. They had style. But it wasn't just all sex tunnels and sex portals. You know, you became the most trusted personal janitor 
to many of Hollywood's biggest stars. Oh yeah, I did odd jobs for all the big names. Kirk Douglas, Audrey Hepburn, Jimmy Stewart, they all employed me at one time or another. In the early days, you could find me scrubbing a yacht deck for Gregory Peck, cleaning a horse stable for Betty Grable, or polishing a window pane for John Wayne. Was it limiting, only taking on jobs that rhymed? Yes, it was a terrible business model. So I tried expanding into automobile detailing. I cleaned William Holden's Ford and John Ford's Holden. That's not a fact that gets a big reaction back home, which is why I'm so happy to be here in Australia. Now, according to your bio, you grew up in the little Jewtown enclave of Mobile, Alabama. What made you trek out to Hollywood? I was a big fan of the silver screen. Personally speaking, I could not have got through the Great Depression if it was not for Mr. Charlie Chaplin's Little Tramp or Mr. Harold Lloyd's little collection of animated erotica. I enjoyed working for the stars in their homes, but I really wanted to be where the action was. I wanted to see the movies being made. And that dream came true with the help of one star in particular. That's right. I was working for Miss Ava Gardner, sweeping out the chimneys and performing the occasional colonic. And she says, Jerry, I think I can get you a job at the studio. So she walks me into Louis B. Mayer's office and says, I hear you need a new studio janitor. I think my friend Jerry can help you out. And Louis B. Mayer looks me up and down, takes a long drag on his cigar and says, Ava... This is a terrible use of my time. So, I got hired, and over the course of my career, I got to clean every piece of trash from every single soundstage for every single studio. And you were right there, in person, during the filming of some of the most beloved films of all time. Oh, sure. I was there when the water pipes burst during the filming of Singing in the Sun, and Mr. Gene Kelly said, Hold on, I think I can work with this. I was on set when Clark Gable picked up Vivian Lee and said, See, this works much better when it's me carrying you. And I was right there when Miss Lenny Riefenstahl artfully wrangled hundreds of thousands of extras in Triumph of the Will. I can't say I was wild about that one, but work is work. But you haven't just witnessed Hollywood history. Legend has it that you may have had an influence on some of the most iconic films of all time. Is it true that you saved... Lawrence of Arabia? Oh no, quite the opposite in fact. See, I forgot to reconnect the brake line on his motorbike. No, no, so sorry, I I meant the movie Lawrence of Arabia. Oh right, sure. So I was busy tidying up a recording studio, and Mari, uh, that's what we used to call Maurice Jarre, the French composer, he was pacing back and forth, back and forth. The poor guy had been told to create one of the greatest soundtracks of all time in only six weeks. They said, Mari, If this doesn't make the American Film Institute's list of the 25 greatest film scores in American cinema by the year 2005, you can forget about winning your third Academy Award for a passage to India in 22 years. Now, I don't like to mess with the creative process. I'm a simple man, so I go about emptying the dustbins and trying to get the gin stains out of Mr. Peter O'Toole, and I start humming. Nothing in particular, just a little tune I like to hum. And Mari, that's what we used to call Maurice Jar, spins around. He says, Jerry, you're a genius. You just saved my career. I insist you get a co-writing credit. I says, Mari, what do I know from film composing? You keep the credit. I'll focus on the trash. That's an extraordinary mark to have left on cinema. Oh, that's nothing. One night I was doing the rounds and I saw Hitch. Uh, That's what we used to call Alfred Hitchcock. Slumped over his desk, tapping a pencil against his big round bonds. I say, Hitch, what's the matter? He says, Jerry, I can't come up with a title for my film. Nothing makes sense. Now, 
behind him, just outside the window, was the studio weather vane. Buster Keaton had fallen on hard times, and so the buses had thrown him some work, standing on top of the animator's building, pointing in the direction the wind was blowing. And that little crosshair platform he was standing on had arrows pointing north, south, east, and west. And just as Hitch said, I can't come up with a title for my film, Mr. Keaton spun around looking directly at me with those big sad eyes. I looked back down at Al, and that's what we used to call Alfred Hitchcock. And I says, I may just be a humble studio janitor, but what about North by Northeast? And you know what he says? He says, Jerry, I don't like it. It's not quite there. So then I say, well, what about North by Southeast? He says no. I think, okay, he wants some repetition in there. These creative guys with the words, they like the the rhythm of language. I say, what about South by South South? He says, what's with the obsession with direction? I say, Al, I could ask you the same thing. Then Fred, that's what we used to call Alfred Hitchcock. He says to me, listen, Jerry, this is a film about a bunch of birds attacking Tippy Hedron. Why name it like a compass? Keep it simple. So I say, sure. What about Psycho? He says, Jerry, that waste paper basket is full. And you know what? He was right. Wow. Wow. These are incredible stories. Almost too incredible to believe. I'm just a humble janitor, but I like to think I made a difference. Like with Casablanca. They had so much trouble with the ending. Should Ilsa go with Victor? Should she stay with Rick? Should she turn out to be a German spy? Should Rick go with Victor? Sam become the new chief of police? Louis run the bar and Ilsa learn to play the piano. So... All the actors were sitting around on set waiting for the director to make up his mind. All the writers were pacing, all the producers were yelling. Nobody knew what was going on. The crew is standing around smoking suspects. And that's what we used to call cigarettes. And they were always dropping them on the ground and I had to clean them up before the actors stepped on them. I say, excuse me there, bogey. Uh, That's what we used to call Ingrid Bergman. Would you mind if I round up the usual suspects? And bogey says to me, what did you say? And everybody on set has gone silent. They're all staring at me. And I look back at her and I shrug, pointing at the butts on the ground. Would you mind if I round up the usual suspects? Suddenly, Sam Warner, that's what we used to call Jack Warner, runs over to me and grabs my lapels and says, Jerry, that's what we used to call me. You've just saved the picture. Next thing I know, I've been hired to rewrite the script from scratch and direct the entire film from beginning to end. I had to do it under the pseudonym Michael Curtis, but I was just happy to help out. I couldn't have done any of these things if I hadn't been blessed by God. That's what we used to call Satan. So, what are you in Australia for? A little dusting. You're listening to Radio Free Cinema. And now it's time for Movie Mailbag. I turn on my computer. I go online. Welcome. Welcome. And my breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You got got mail. So let's check in with our producer, Faith. Faith, what has the mailbag brought us today? We've got a letter here from listener Alfred Kralik, who's written in to say, My partner has never seen a film, and I want to show her the entire cinematic canon in narrative order. Where do I begin? Well, this is an amazing question. Uh, As listeners to this show know, we both subscribe to the idea that all films fit into a single continuity that we like to call life. And so you have to watch all films in order to truly get the most out of them. It's the only way to properly enjoy cinema. But there is some contention. You and I do it slightly differently. See, I start with Louis Le Prince's short Round Hay Garden scene from 1888 and keep going through every film in release order. 
until I get to Hotel Transylvania 3 or whatever the last film to come out was. Oh, no, Dadak from India, apparently. Oh, no, El Cabra uh, from Mexico. No, Sorman Jayate from India. No, but I think the questioner is asking about narrative order, not release order, which is where my way of doing things comes in. Chronological order is key. Do you remember when Francis Ford Coppola recut the Godfather trilogy to get rid of those unnecessary flashbacks? Oh, oh yeah, great decision. Everyone loved that. Huge improvement. Right. Suddenly the saga happens in chronological order, which is as it should be. I actually do the same with the Back to the Future trilogy. Whenever I watch it, I play all the Old West stuff in Back to the Future 3 first. Then I put on the last third of Back to the Future 2 and swap that scene by scene with the bulk of Back to the Future 1 then every 1980s scene from all three films and then all the future stuff from part 2 so we actually end with the bit in 2015 when they rescue present day Jennifer from future Marty and Jen's house it takes about 14 hours in total to do it what with all the disc swapping but it is worth it that's That should come with a health warning. That's for serious cinephiles only. Civilians shouldn't attempt this. So I think what the questioner is asking is where to start. If you're showing your partner the entire cinematic canon, you want to kick off with films set at the dawn of time. So you remember Terrence Malick's Congress of the Forgotten, the drama about the couple trying to overcome their fear of ennui? Oh yeah, great film. Long. Well, you know that uh, scene when it looks like something's about to happen and then instead Malik cuts to a 30-minute sequence depicting the Big Bang and its aftermath? Uh, That's where you begin. What, the whole film or just that middle scene? Uh, Just the middle scene. But then I pause it about 60 seconds in and watch the final five minutes of the 1953 B-movie classic The Time Storm when Professor Zeit and the Chrono Troops go back to watch the beginnings of the universe. Then I put back in the Malik film and watch the remaining 29 minutes. And then you remember the bit in the 1978 erotic sci-fi thriller Planet Sex when the intercourse menor Jane experiences such incomparable pleasure that she basically creates the universe? No, no, that was poetic realism. So, it still happened. No, no, point of order. That's a fantasy sequence that's taking place inside Jane's mind in the future in 1999. Untrue. Her profound ecstasy literally transported them to the beginnings of the universe, which she then orgasmically creates. No, no. How would that even work? They were harvesting time crystals on the planet Labino. That's literally why she needed Sexbot Alpha as a pleasure droid. It's physically impossible for a biological male to even enter the space caves of Eros. Their forbidden congress is what activates the crystal's hidden power. Mmm, agree to disagree. Anyway, I'll watch that and then go straight into The Hobbit. Thanks for writing in. Radio Free Cinema. Well, we're almost out of time, but first, did you correctly guess the obscure movie quote from earlier in the show? Here it is again. You better listen to me, buddy. And you better listen good. I'm not the one on trial here. Yes, that was Freddie Jones from The Trial of Freddie Jones. Well done to everyone who correctly picked that. Great film, great quote. All right, it's time for us to go. So don't forget to join us next week for our new special Quarantino segment where we look at the best Quentin Tarantino films to watch when in quarantine. It's basically just all of them. He's only made nine. Hmm. Until then, as we always say on Radio Free Cinema... Goodbye.